Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to welcome you all to the to this event um, hosted by the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE and the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program. My name is Armina Ishkanian, and I am the Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity, which is based at the Inequalities Institute. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Department of Social Policy at the LSE. This event is organized as part of the Politics of Inequality research theme, which I co-convene with Ellen Helsper. I'm incredibly pleased to be chairing today's event titled Changing the Story on Disability. This event will hear from those who are striving to shift narratives around disability through public awareness campaigns globally. It will explore whether and how an empirical approach to framing could more effectively shift public perceptions and behaviors. Our panelists today are Frederick Uko, Liz Sace, Professor Tom Shakespeare, and Kate Stanley. I will introduce all the speakers in the order they will be speaking. They will each speak for around 10 minutes, and afterwards, the audience will have an opportunity to pose them questions. Our first speaker this afternoon is Liz Sace, who is a Joseph Roundtree Foundation Practitioner Fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at LSE and a former Chief Executive of Disability Rights UK. Our second speaker this afternoon is Kate Stanley. Kate serves as the Executive Director of Frameworks UK, the sister organization to Frameworks in the United States. Our third speaker will be Professor Tom Shakespeare, who is Professor of Disability Research at the International Center for Evidence in Disability at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And our final speaker is Frederick Uko, who is the Program Officer of the Disability Rights Program for Open Society Initiative for Eastern Africa, and a member of the inaugural 2017-2018 cohort of Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity. This event will run for around one and a half hours. Our panel will present for around one hour, and as usual, there will be an opportunity for the audience to give them questions. Please write your questions using the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. Please state your name and affiliation where possible. Before I turn to the speakers, I'd like to just state that our next public event um, hosted by the International Inequalities Institute is titled The Dawn of Everything, and it will take place at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, the 13th of October. Please go to the Institute website for further information. I now hand over to our panel and invite our first speaker, Liz Sace, to take the to take the virtual floor. Many thanks to you all, and I hope you will enjoy this event. Thank you so much, uh, Amina, and it's absolutely great to be here. Um, so I'm 
I'm going to use a few slides and I've just put up um, a picture of uh, one of my prized possessions, which is a mug from the 1990s, which says rights for disabled people now. And it was a campaigning tool in um, uh, what became ultimately the Disability Discrimination Act 1995. But what I want to do for my few minutes is to just um, share some reflections, particularly from the UK, from my own involvement in disability and mental health rights campaigns, some of the successes, some of the pitfalls and what we might, uh, what we might therefore um, learn. And um, I just thought it might be worth mentioning first that we do seem to be seeing a bit more of disabled people shaping public narratives. I mean, it strikes me that when I was first involved in all this in the 1990s, disabled people were simply talked about in the media, then maybe allowed to say something sort of pinned into role as a case study. But the people who actually framed the issues were the so-called expert, a non-disabled person. Um, but now, here I've put up a picture of George Webster, who's uh, a man with a learning disability, who's recently become a presenter on CBeebies on the BBC, and also a picture of Rosie Jones, who, um, well, she's been in the media just recently for uh, uh, getting harassment on grounds of disability publicly, but she's a great, been a great presenter on the Paralympics. So I think we're seeing a little bit more of uh, disabled people likely to shape the narrative, not just be the object of it. Having said that, um, great credit to Social Care Future, who have issued a pledge uh, that people can sign up to, that if you're asked to speak at an event on social care, you should say no, unless there's meaningful involvement of people who are using social care, to, drawing on social care in, the, in those events. So we certainly, you know, um, we're not there yet in terms of who is doing the framing. So I just wanted to start there. But then to go back historically. So I've put up a, a picture that says on it, ADA America wins. And it's got the stars and stripes. And ADA stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, I spent a bit of time in America in the 90s. And what was very striking about the campaign to get civil rights for disabled people in America was that it, it used patriotism, this stars and stripes everywhere, America wins. And it built cross-party support. It brought together people with disabilities, to use the American language, business, civil rights leaders from the Black Civil Rights Movement, trade unionists, and it built public support through those sorts of slogans. And it was, I mean, difficult to imagine now, but it, it was across the aisle support. You know, maybe don't see so much across the aisle bipartisan support in American politics these days. But anyway, that's what was achieved. And that groundbreaking law passed because of that campaign. And I think partly because of that framing. Then if we jump to my mug, which uh, the Rights Now campaign, the UK Disability Discrimination Act, um, also passed after a campaign that I have to say was sometimes fractious. I was coming at this, I was overseeing and leading the, the lobby, the parliamentary lobbying and policy work from a mental health point of view. So bringing the mental health organizations together. And one of the, one of the pitfalls was that everybody talked the language of disabled people in the, in the, um, in the campaign, but actually in the mental health world and in the cancer world and many others, people didn't identify as disabled people. They, you know, they, it, it was people, people saying I'm mad or I've got mental distress or I'm a survivor or whatever. And um, I'll come back to this, but I, I, I think possibly we, we spent a bit too much energy on those sorts of arguments and on the arguments about 
how far the law should go. You need all those debates and identity is really important, but you can kind of get a bit diverted from your main goal. Um, so that's just a sort of, we got there, we, we passed a law, you know, a law got passed, which, was, which has been gradually improved upon over the years. Um, okay, but I was also involved in mental health campaigns back in the 90s. And it, early in the 90s, all the lobbying and campaigning was about uh, access to treatments um, and wanting decent services and better information and that sort of thing. But actually, what people um, with mental health conditions wanted was having a life. It was not just about treatment and support. Um, so we started a campaign called Respect in the 90s. And Respect at the time had a sort of street cool vibe. I can't quite describe it. I, people of my age might remember. Um, and that was all about combating discrimination and people having a life, having employment, having housing and so on. And then we launched something called Creating Accepting Communities. I, I, it's 1990s language. But basically, this was sort of saying... It's one thing to close a psychiatric institution and create community services, but that doesn't mean people have a life. So what we want is proper inclusion and full participation. Uh, and, and also that had a, quite a strong strand of racial equality within it. So we were, I don't think we used the term intersectional back then, but it, we were trying to do that. And I think all that work about reducing discrimination paved the way for some of the big campaigns in the 2000s that I think we're all familiar with, opening up, talking about our mental health, taking away the taboo. So we've seen the big Time to Change campaign. I've put up a picture here of Time to Talk Day. Um, we've seen the Royals getting very involved in, you know, it's okay to open up about mental health issues. Um, I do think there are some risks with the way these campaigns have gone, as well as some, you know, we, it, it is easier for us to talk about mental health, that's positive, but the risks. So Mark Brown, who's a great writer on uh, mental health and uh, issues, said, who's pitching to the hungry, growing group of people who want to do something beyond telling their story? It's as if once you've told your story, that's, that's the end of reducing the discrimination. And it's clear that these, these campaigns, although they've had successes, haven't translated into a big shift in poverty. You know, you've still got things like people with serious mental health problems are three and a half times more likely to be in debt, far more likely to be out of work and so on. And then finally, there may be a risk about that as we all talk about our mental health challenges, does it make the understandable types of challenge more acceptable but not do anything for the people who've got, say, a diagnosis of a personality disorder or a psychosis. And just to shout out really to big exception, David Harewood's work on psychosis and me, et cetera, which I think has really helped to, to shift that balance a bit. But on the whole, people, people are not talking about perhaps the most extreme issues uh, with mental health challenges. And, and actually, that's something that uh, Satnam Sangera had said on Twitter in the last day or two. So then while, while we were trying to do all this in the, the 90s and 2000s, there was competing noise. There was lots of campaigning using the frame, mental illness is an illness like any other, or even it's a brain disease. And I actually interviewed in America um, some of the people who funded the original campaigns about mental illness being a brain disease. 
And the funding came from the marketing department of a pharmaceutical company, which I think shows you something. And it's a warning, actually, that when campaigns get bent to other ends, you know, that they're apparently about uh, dismantling discrimination, opening up participation. But there's a subtext that, you know, this is about making sure that you can sell your pharmaceutical product or there's a subtext um, about, uh, you know, let's fundraising for a charity or whatever. Sometimes it distorts the message. And what that message does, and the evidence is now very clear, if you tell people mental illness is an illness like any other, it makes people more likely to see those people affected as incompetent, unpredictable, possibly dangerous and unable to take responsibility. So you're completely shooting yourself in the foot. So it shouldn't be used, that message. So lots of competing messages around. In the 2010s and the 2020s, and I think mental, well, Mental Health Day yesterday showed this, most of the campaigning is, again, for increased access to services. Oh, you know, let's all open up so that we seek help. Uh, slight feeling of being back to square one. And the late, great Judy Chamberlain, said in 1977, when times are hard, it's tempting to call for more experts and more of their services, unable to acknowledge it's the system itself that's the problem. We need to ch we need changed systems and changed opportunities, not just more of the same or bring back the same if it's going. Um, so I'm going to go on now to talk about some later disability campaigns. Um, and I've put up a picture uh, of a, um, a fresh-faced, up-and-coming Conservative Party leader. This does date it a bit. One David Cameron, for people in the UK, um, will uh, know that that does date it a bit. Um, but the picture also shows the late, great Sir Bert Massey, who was a fantastic um, disability leader and campaigner. And they are launching the disability agenda. And I should here pay some tribute to my former colleagues at the Disability Rights Commission, Neil Crowther, Patrick Edwards and others who um, fra uh, frame, did the framing on this. Um, but the goal was equal participation and it was based on public research. So what do the public actually feel and feel and believe already about disability? And given that, what will resonate with people? What will resonate with the public and also what will resonate with decision makers? So rather than just campaigning for money for disability services or something, um, we had the phrase putting disability at the heart of public policy. So if, for example, you were um, in government and you, want, you wanted to solve challenges around skills or employment or crime or child poverty, our argument was you couldn't do it if you didn't think about disability. I mean, just child poverty, for example, I think at the time, something like a third of children in poverty had a disabled parent. So you had to think about disability to solve it. You made it a mainstream issue. And that initiative had cross-party support. Liz, yeah. just one more minute, please. <laughs> OK, fine. So in the 2010s, with austerity, we got to some really competing messages because some people were saying quite rightly, you know, that actually we're being pressurised inappropriately into work, but it's really important. And others were saying, we really want to work. And it was, uh, it was, it got quite fractious. Um, and I think I just want to give credit to some brilliant recent work, people with energy impairments, led by Catherine Hale and others, specifying the autonomy that can help some people to be able to work over when, where and how you work, and bridging gaps using human rights. Okay, I had a few learning points. Bring people together to forge a 
positive aim. Naomi Klein said, politics hates a vacuum. If it's not filled with hope, someone will fill it with fear. Unite on the goal, not on the identity. Here we are, global audience. Some people talk about people with disabilities. Some people talk about disabled people. Identity matters, but let's connect our identities, not try and collapse them and try and make everybody identify exactly the same way. Uh, manage the tensions between disabled people's organisations and charities over power and resources. And uh, just a, a reference to Armina's work on surreptitious symbiosis, because I think there's a lot of mistrust between disabled people's organisations and charities. Um, but actually, it's possible if people with lived experience have can shape the narrative. And if you can identify a common goal, it's possible to share expertise. Um, I've got a quote here from Duncan Green, which I apologize, I don't have time to, to read out, but basically explaining why people mistrust each other. And I, I've been in all of those positions, outside, inside, and it's really important to have dialogue and see where you can collaborate. It's, it's helpful. So um, find the resonance between your goals and those of allies and those of the people with power who can make something happen. Um, research, research and um, show that change is achievable. It's no good just saying what the problem is. And remember, support and treatment are not an end in themselves, but a means to achieving full participation, a means to achieving a decent life, the life you want. And if anybody's interested, I've written stuff on this, both in terms of disability and switching focus and on the whole mental history of all that mental health campaigning, etc., from psychiatric patient citizen. Sorry to be late. Thank you so much. That was an excellent presentation, Liz, and gives us much food for thought. So appreciate your contribution. So Kate, I'd like to invite you to now take the virtual floor. Over to you, please. Thank you. Um, some brilliant examples there from Liz about framing in action. And um, happily, I think what I'm going to be talking about really um, builds on the points that Liz was making there about pointers to the future, things that have worked in practice to frame disability issues successfully and unsuccessfully in the past. So uh, the task set by, by Armina was to think about whether an empirical approach to framing, um, to framing our communications could help shift public perceptions of disability, help shift uh, policy makers, um, decision makers, um, and, and change reality for all of us. Well, unsurprisingly, I think framing can make a difference, and I'll spend a brief minute on why, and then a few more minutes on how. So why would reframing our communications create change? Shifting mindsets is a core ingredient in creating a more inclusive society and better opportunities for disabled people. So we need new ways of thinking and understanding the issue of disability and thinking and understanding the experiences of disabled people. And we know that thinking and understanding are both frame dependent. So that means that the way we present information has the power to shape the way that people understand a set of issues, as well as their attitudes, sense of responsibility, support for solutions and their motivation to change. So in short, frames matter. 
More than 60 years of social and behavioral science research has shown convincingly that the way we present information affects what people think, feel, and do. And this is certainly true when it comes to disability. This involves deeply held cultural understandings about personhood, agency, responsibility, interdependence, and well-being, and sometimes the communications choices that we make are maybe the, the, they might be small, so they might be just the pronouns we use or the verbs we choose. At other times, our communications choices, our framing choices are much more obvious. So they might be the values we use to argue for why addressing an issue is important or the metaphors we develop to help people understand how an issue works. The bottom line is that by making better evidence-informed choices in how we present information can help shift mindsets, motivate change, and hasten the full inclusion of disabled people. So at Frameworks, we work with charities and other mission-driven organizations to take an empirical approach to figuring out the best ways to frame communications to achieve specific social change. Then we work with these organizations to imply that evidence in practice. So we're probably best known for our work in the US on early childhood development and in the UK for our work on poverty. Sadly, we've not yet conducted research on disability issues, though we would love to. Um, so we've not had the opportunity to develop reframing tools that are specific to this field. However, I'd like to share some, some framing tips um, based on best practice drawn off the back of more than 20 years of communications research on a wide range of social issues. Okay, so on to the how to communicate more effectively around disability and disabled people's uh, full inclusion. I've got three things to avoid and three things to do, and I've probably got about five minutes. So here we go. Things to avoid. Number one, avoid unframed facts and numbers. So communications often rely on the use of statistics, facts and numbers to emphasize the scope of an issue. So using facts is a primary framing strategy in this field. And in research on a wide range of issues, frameworks researchers, as well as social scientists, have found that a just the facts approach is frequently ineffective and can even be counterproductive in advancing support for policies or practices. So we need to contextualize data. We should never expect data to speak for itself. Second thing to avoid, don't focus on rebutting other people's stories. So repeating misperceptions often serves to reinforce them, even if you're repeating the story in order to rebut it. There are lots of reasons for this, but one of them is that the number one predictor of whether you believe something to be true is the number of times you've heard it. So the more you repeat the misperception, the more likely you are to reinforce it, even if you're repeating it to rebut it. So we need to be telling the story that we want to tell, not simply repeating stories that do harm. Third thing to avoid, crisis stories. Crisis framing emphasizes the overwhelming scope of the problem. 
another common strategy. Understandably, often advocates' communications will focus on the extent to which disabled people face discrimination and disadvantage. Our research, and again, other social science studies have consistently found that employing a crisis tone can depress support for the types of policies, programs, and resources that advocates are seeking to promote. So this is about, yes, shining a light on that discrimination, shining a light on that disadvantage, absolutely, but doing it in a way that highlights the urgent need for action and then quickly pivots to a discussion of solutions rather than repeatedly and consistently using an alarmist tone. Okay, so that's three things that our evidence-based suggests would be um, good to avoid in communications practice. Three things also really stick out for me in terms of things to do when it comes to good communications practice on disability and disabled people. First thing is to balance urgency with efficacy. So I've already hinted at this when I was talking about crisis. Rather than using a crisis tone, it's good to use a dose of urgency to emphasize the urgency of the problem and the need to tackle it, but then match that with a good dose of efficacy. So that sense that there's something that can be done. People need to know that the challenges that people with disabilities face in exercising their full human rights are real. And they also need to know that actionable solutions exist to address these problems and to improve um, outcomes for everybody. So that's balancing urgency with efficacy, the sense that something can be done. And so this means talking about solutions. So this is my, my second good thing to do. And when I say talking about solutions, I don't just mean describing a policy or a program. I mean providing a clear story that lays out a particular challenge that disabled people face, that describes how a particular solution addresses that challenge, and then details the positive and collective outcomes that result. So it's a story rather than simply a policy, simply a practice. Sector communications do tend to focus on the problem and there tends to be less attention paid to solutions. This imbalance between problems and solutions was, is likely to exacerbate fatalistic attitudes. So without a greater emphasis on solutions, people are likely to conclude that the challenges to ensuring the full rights of disabled people are realized are simply too great to be solved. We need people to understand that these are solvable issues. Number three, third tip that I would recommend based on our research that, that communications try to do is to explain. So um, communicators tend to describe um, the characteristics of the population of people with disabilities, say its size or its composition, or they tend to describe the types of communication and disadvantage that disabled people frequently encounter. So they describe those things. Fewer materials explain how problems and their solutions actually work. So for example, while many communications state that poverty is associated with disability, fewer explain why this relationship exists. So similarly, organizations often emphasize that disability is shaped by the social environment, 
but they don't explain why or how this can happen. And at Frameworks, we've tested the effectiveness of description as compared to explanation in numerous issue areas and repeatedly found that a cause and effect style of communications, which explains an issue, is much more likely to build support for change. So there's three things to avoid, three things to advance um, in framing communications around disability issues based on our wider body of research. And I hope that one day we can delve deeper and do specific work around this issue. But in the meantime, look forward to hearing from everybody else and to your questions. Thank you so much, Kate. It was really interesting. And I like how you said it. Three things to avoid and three things to do. That's really a very helpful way of framing things. So thank you. Um, and now I invite Tom, Professor Tom Shakespeare, um, to present um, his talk. Okay, thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. And I'm sorry that I'm speaking from my bed as I'm rather bed bound at the moment. Um, I'm very interested in how we can change the story on disability. And I think there's a problem that we have, which is to try and enable in our stories disabled people to have agency themselves. We know that we've got to reject a medical model which is based on uh, incapacity of individuals. But there's a danger that we replace it with a social model, which is based on being defined by oppression, all the problems. And I think this very much follows on the last talk. Either way, disabled people risk being seen as victims. But then if we celebrate the achievement of disabled individuals, um, we might run the risk of promoting what's been called inspiration porn and glossing over the reality of living with impairment or disabling barriers. Um, and then if we support what disabled people can do and celebrate it, um, do they also need support from welfare benefits or from other interventions? And I don't know if you've watched the BBC or the, sorry, the Channel 4 programme, The Last Leg, but the presenters talking about the Paralympics joked that for every medal won by a Team GB Paralympic athlete, they said something like, there goes her personal independence payments. So this tension between seeing people as really successful in whatever field they enter, but also as having needs which can be met by the welfare state, I think is difficult. What I want to do now is to report on research we did with disabled people in Zambia, Uganda and Kenya, um, uh, three African countries. And this work, in fact, was done through uh, UCL and with Nora Gross, um, funded by the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office and ESRC. And if you look at the discourses that we have about disabled people in Africa, um, they're all about poverty, failure, dependency and need. And I just want to quote um, uh, Arne Eder and Benedicta Ingstadt in 2013. So they looked at seven SINTEF studies that have been done on disability in Africa. And they concluded key, and this is a quote, key indicators on education, mental and physical health, employment, socioeconomic status, access to information, social participation, etc., all point in the same direction. There are substantial gaps in services to disabled people. Disability is associated with a lower level of living when compared to non-disabled people. Women with disabilities are worse off and the rural disabled have a lower level of living than their ca urban counterparts. So that's all true. I believe it, it's evidenced uh, that we can show you 
the research. But at the same time, anybody who spends any time working with disabled people in Africa or many low-income settings has met dozens of very successful, assertive, proud persons with disabilities. Often these people are associated with vibrant organizations of disabled people, but increasingly they've moved on to mainstream roles in society. And again, in reviewing qualitative studies about disability in Africa, Anna Ada and Benedicta Ingstadt point to the importance of capturing this agency while balancing that with an awareness of the structural forces that make it so difficult for people with disabilities in their households to survive, let alone thrive. And they say we need to hear the voices of people with disabilities living in uh, uh, very difficult conditions and, sh and show how they manage. So we interviewed 103 disabled people who'd achieved success in their lives. And what we found was tremendous resilience, not just personal capacities, but also the role of families, the role of um, NGOs, the role of the state in trying to enable people to uh, achieve success. And there's this notion of adversity inoculation, which is particularly relevant. But if you ask me a question, I'll tell you more about that later. What we found was that between a tenth and a third of the 103 participants had failed to complete uh, school. And we're talking about you know, a, a secondary school mainly owing to the barriers they faced. That, for example, the distance they had to go, the prejudice of teachers, the barriers within the environments. But without in, ex, allowing those exceptions, the remaining participants were well-educated, whether they'd attended special schools or mainstream schools. And they came from very diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, but they did have um, intelligence and emotional intelligence enabling them to benefit from their education, overcome the obstacles they faced, whether, as I've said, travel to school or around the classroom itself. Um, and because they showed individual promise, several participants were successful in attracting interest from their relatives, their benefactors who are willing to pay school or university fees. And those who've been lucky enough to reach university often had their fees paid by the government. Uganda in particular, had astounding educational achievements with nearly two thirds of the participants we interviewed, remember that's about 35 in terms of Uganda, achieving university degrees, twice the success of Kenya and Zambia, uh, because of course the Ugandan government generally pays scholarships for disabled university attenders. Um, and this success, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take on, on, on record the barriers, the travel, and I can quote a lot of this, though, uh, the, the toilets, the attitudes of others, the mocking, the bullying. So there's a lot of obstacles that they overcome, really bad obstacles from the environment and indeed from their peers. I'll just tell you about the mobility impaired Ugandan child whose school peers used to take away his walking sticks, to, quote, to test him on how he would work without, walk without them. So there's a hell of a lot from staff, from peers, from others in family who say it's not worth educating you. But then when it comes to employment, let me briefly summarize what these folk did in Kenya, Uganda and Zambia. So, for example, in, in, in all these countries, uh, four, five, six people work for civil service. Um, uh, several people work for the professions, for example, as a teacher. Um, a lot of people, the a majority of the sample worked for uh, non-governmental organizations or particularly DPOs, disabled people's organizations. 
Uh, a few worked in business. Many were self-employed, running shops or trading. Uh, six or five or six of them, in particularly in rural areas. Um, five or six of them were craftspeople. Uh, two or three of them in each country were farmers. Um, and only a very few of them were not active in the employment. They'd faced many barriers, discrimination from employers or from co-workers. And that's why often they'd been in um, a, a DPO employment because they'd faced barriers to mainstream employment. But they really tried hard to be independent. The Kenyan participant who strived coping for work wouldn't ask for help unless it's really necessary. Um, real negative attitudes they face, for example, trying to get loans from microfinance institutions where they're seen as a bad as a bad bet, if you like. So it's not just about education. It's not just about finding a job to achieve self-sufficiency. In most countries and for most people, it's about finding a partner and having a family. And I just want to tell you, of the 31 Kenyan participants, 23 were married or in long-term relationships. Of the 39 Ugandan participants, 22 were married in long-term relationships. Of the 34 Zambian participants, 26 were married or widowed. And many of them had, many, many of them had children. It was a very common theme to hear participants proudly mention that they were supporting their siblings through education or they were looking after their elderly parents. And there were lots of barriers they faced. Several men and women explained that their partners left them after they developed a disability. Others had to overcome the prejudices of their partner's families who didn't want their daughter to marry a disabled man or woman. Um, and it's much worse for women. Economic success enables men with disabilities to be eligible as partners. If you've got the money, if you've got a business, then you're a good bet, despite any disability you might have. But this is less possible, I think, for women with disabilities. So let me conclude. What I've shared here very briefly is data challenging the negative assumptions that imply people with disabilities can never do well or always need handouts. The 103 participants in this study had become extremely self-directed, resilient, positive individuals who were contributing not just to the well-being of their families, but also to the economic development of their society. The Kenyan disabled man who said, I want to show my fellow PWDs that we can make it. And when I fully recover, I have a vision that I want to create job opportunities for others. This is a gentleman with spinal cord injury. So it's not just about begging. There is begging everywhere, but it's not the best solution. And then remember, there's very little government support. There may be some funding for university, but you know, it, compared to Britain, very little. So these individuals are overcoming obstacles, making progress on their own, maybe with their family, maybe with an NGO or DPO, but basically on their own. As another participant said, if I start pitying myself, I will fail. And nobody is caring about me and nobody is willing to help me. So I have to cope with whatever comes ahead of me. And this attitude, this resilience, this adversity inoculation highlighted how in the absence of welfare state or many other sports, many individuals with disabilities in low middle income countries have no choice but to rely on their own resources if they want to survive, let alone thrive. But I want to tell you the story that we can find many people in these countries who do survive, who do thrive. And I think that's testament to their strength of character. But also it shows that the more we do to support people, the more success we'll find. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tom.
I think we will come back to this um, point that you raised about adversity inoculation. That was something I'd like to hear and, and discuss a bit more. Um, so that was, thank you very much for that presentation. So now um, I turn to our final speaker, last but not least, Frederick Uko, who's joining us from Kenya. Frederick, over to you, please. Um, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity and my colleagues as well for uh, being uh, going before me and really elaborating about the topic uh, for today, changing the story on disability. And mine, I'm handling uh, coming from perspective of advocacy and how advocacy and partnership has really helped to shape narratives around disability discourse and part of the work that I've been uh, slightly engaged in. So um, when we hear the word advocacy, of course, we, we, we have a lot of um, thoughts around going around um, what is it that we are talking about. But for the purposes of my presentation, advocacy is just perhaps any action that uh, we are, people are engaged in towards um, um, championing a cause or supporting or defending a particular cause or pleading on behalf of a particular group in terms of what is it that they want to see come into being. Often done um, in terms of being uh, bringing up um, desired condition, perhaps uh, working around uh, infringed rights or coming to voice for marginalized groups uh, in this and specifically persons with disability. And normally we target um, people in decision-making within society and with a particular relevance to a situation or subject that that particular group is uh, facing at that given time. And I, I, I really just wanted to situate this in terms of my talk is more about how has advocacy been? What are the things that I've been engaging in in terms of advocacy so far up to now? And what my peers also do uh, work around. And it's been more around uh, issues of participation. Why is it that persons with disability are not participating in society, yet they are part and parcel of the society? So the, the, th the, things are, the, the issues have been, why can't we get persons with disability participating in all that that goes within society? Do they have an opportunity to participate? Is the environment facilitative enough for them to participate? Why are we not including individuals within our society in all uh, spheres of life? Why are we not giving opportunities, equal opportunities to everyone who has a right within the confines of our society to enjoy any um, right, any opportunity that they so do qualify as a human being? Why is it that within basic rights, there are people who can access while others cannot access for the mere fact that this one looks different from us or the other one has a, a different way of partaking in a particular way within uh, society. And then who then gives us the right to choose that so-and-so can access this particular right? This set of people cannot access this particular right. For example, why is it that children with disability do not access education in a manner that is um, facilitative for them to acquire knowledge? basic skills for them to be able to lead independent lives? Why is it that we choose to frame lives of persons with disability as if they need to live in a particular cocoon, yet life is intersectional? Yet we 
as we go through life, we have our families, we have the society, the environment around us, and we do participate wholesomely within all these. So really, the fact that then personal disability are not accessing these particular environments, it brings in the, the fact that now we need to agitate for us to do partake within that um, uh, provision within society, right to life. Why is it that we should determine who is who has a severe disability and don't deserve to live, yet our constitution do spell out that everyone has a right to life within uh, our, our society. So really, this has largely been the issues that persons with disability are fighting towards within this particular society that I have seen and participated in within the confines of Kenya. Really, my involvement has been around youth with disability, that when you are young, it doesn't mean that you stop being disabled. Why is it that the, the disability movement, actually it's across the world, doesn't take in issues of youth with disability? And yet, these are groups that is huge in numbers within any conference, even young people globally are the majority in numbers and so will be in disability movement. Yet we don't pay attention in terms of how to nurture them so that they take over the leadership of disability movement. Why are they being disregarded within that discourse in terms of bringing out their voice? So really pushing towards involvement of young people with disability within the disability movement has been key issues that have worked around in Kenya and actually across the region to ensure that young people with disability are also participating within the disability movement and also working around issues that affect them mostly, especially employment, because young people are coming from school, they need to get jobs, yet there are no jobs. Yet there is also a massive discrimination around issues of employment across uh, the regions. And this is actually global, not only in Africa. And so really pushing towards the meaningful participation of young people within the disability movement so that their issues also get noticed has been key. And we can see how um, the level of success that that is bringing forward. Also development of youth policy. While policies are being developed, where is the place for young people with disability? And these have had an opportunity of serving on a government um, uh, policy institution to really input on how issues of youth with disability can be taken care of until even the representation within the framework that then implements that particular policy. And I've seen, uh, I'll, I'll come to why that is important in terms of framing that, that you have issues that relate to personal disability discussed by personal disability themselves and at least being fronted by someone who's young and bringing on the, the lived experience to the table. We have a law in Kenya that provides for 5% employment of persons with disability. This law has never been implemented or it has a poor implementation rate. Yet we continue to say that poverty does affect young uh, persons with disability greatly. And in, in, in the scheme of things, this is something that we can actually tap into, use the legislative framework that are there to really push a narrative that, yeah, if we provide these opportunities, then it means personal disability will equally have resources in their pocket to be able to take care of their own issues without necessarily needing um, support from government coffers or, or wherever, or their family having to uh, deep, 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 uh, dig deeper into their pockets towards supporting them. And really, the implementation of pushing for implementation of these, providing evidence that actually when they begin to earn, 
when they start their own businesses, it does make a difference in those statistics around poverty becomes now an issue that we, all of us now need to frame in terms of pushing that narrative forward. And that can only be done being led by persons with disability as it is showing now that really um, that is beginning to work because persons with disability now are starting themselves to say, look, yes, we don't have jobs, but we can, it's not that we don't want to work. We, if given an opportunity or given a facilitative environment, we are, can actually do a better job and be able to support our families and ourselves towards the prosperity of this particular country. The other thing is around, um, and now that I work in philanthropy, uh, there's a huge problem around is disability rights a human rights issue? And so you will find organizations of persons with disability not accessing equitable uh, resources as will be the mainstream uh, uh, human rights organization. And so, again, there's, there's work that has gone into this trying to educate um, um, funders to understand that disability issues are equally human rights issues, and then they also need to allocate um, resources that goes towards supporting this group to ensure that they are also uh, improving, the capacity is, is improving so that they're able to speak uh, for themselves and not rely on people speaking or on their behalf. Um, so really, success, why is it that then um, advocacy around these issues have been successful so far or have gained traction? For me, and participating in all these, um, the key lesson I get is that when you base, you have evidence, and when you are able to show people that this is what we could have in future, this is how sustainable this cause could be. People then begin to buy in faster than if you just said, we need to help persons with disability. But if you provided evidence that for us to reduce the net uh, poverty that our country is uh, experiencing, all the 2 million persons with disability that are said to be living in poverty need to progress towards moving out of poverty. And the only way we can do that, we need to find them jobs. And the only way those jobs can be found is if we implemented this particular uh, legislation that the government already passed. And if we put in resources towards educating a child with a disability so that they're not left behind in terms of the milestone they need to get to achieve within their uh, lifetime. So really that brings in um, kind of uh, bring traction and people who not necessarily understand the issue around disability then have something to hang on to propel a particular um, goal within the advocacy uh, strategy that people want to work around. Also, secondly, lived experiences and like personal stories, interaction of person to person do help. For example, now that I work in philanthropy, uh, speaking with someone uh, who's working closely with me with, within the same organization and, and, and helping them understand why it's important to support an organization of persons with disability that is working on bringing out political voice, that is a different thing when they read that from a particular book or somewhere or a paper someone wrote, because I'll be able to explain to them, if you support an organization to build their political voice, it means that other hundreds of persons with disability will be able to talk about the same issues in their different constituents and politicians around that those areas will be able to listen and that's how you build a mass of activists uh, campaigning on the same issues and likeliness that other people will begin to uh, borrow, uh, follow suit and implement what it is that people are asking around.
cross-sector partnership is important. So not only having persons with disability working by themselves, um, making a partnership with either youth movement, women movement, um, LBTI, really and bringing out issues together has been something that I see successful because then you have all of all these people coming out as allies and all of you working around because uh, essentially you are marginalized within a society. But then when you get that traction, people begin to listen to you because they hear women talking about the same thing about personal disability, youth talking about the same thing, and they listen. They say, ah, no, this is actually something that we need to pay attention to, push forward so that we make some changes around that. And, and then the mantra around um, leaving no one be behind. So everybody says leave no one behind or nothing about us without us. But how do we situate that? Because yes, nothing about us without us, but is it tokenism? Are you just bringing one person and then you say nothing about us without us? How is it that, that the environment that someone with lived experience is helping colleagues or allies understand the issues and then helping them push that forward that then brings a success to a campaign or changes a narrative about something because ordinarily somebody will say oh you're just self-serving or you're just working on issues narrow issues yet these issues affect the whole society in totality but the first instance people will just think this is someone with a disability for example if you put a ramp somewhere an old person somebody who's advanced in age will need to pass there uh, maybe a woman who is, um, uh, say, um, uh, somebody who is uh, pregnant will need to use that ramp because they will not go to stress, they can sleep. Or someone who uh, got an accident and they're still recovering can slide on uh, stairs, so they will need to use that ramp. So really, it helps everyone. And when you begin now working with people that way, they begin to understand that um, information together, and then you can move forward in terms of advancing um, any... Um, uh, courses that you want to uh, propel with insight. So in concluding, advocacy is still important because personal disability are still fighting ableism. We are still fighting discrimination. We're still fighting exclusion. We're still fighting institutional barriers or environmental barriers or attitudinal barriers that then make it hard for us to achieve particular aspiration that we want because then we still have to push a narrative that yes we are a, we we can do a b c d but then match that with but this is how we can do it it's not that we just want to do it but this is the best way of helping us do it and i thank you thank you so much frederick i think there's so much resonance with the other speakers and also i think your presentation draws so many things together that I hope we will now have time to discuss. Before I open it up to the audience, I want to give all of our speakers an opportunity to reflect or comment on one another's presentations or ask each other a question. Um, I'm mindful of the time, so I'm going to allocate about five, six minutes to this. So any of our speakers want to um, raise any questions to one another or comment? Sorry, I'm muted. Um, I just put in the box that uh, I was so interested in Frederick's presentation and um, at the International Centre for Evidence and Disability at um, London School, we are just signed a contract with the MasterCard Foundation and we will be working with young people in Ghana, Senegal, Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda and Ethiopia. 
And the whole point is to explore and to get their life stories of um, education and employment, the barriers they faced and how they, uh, in some cases, overcame them. And it's very much based on co-production, on the voices of young people, and to help build the next generation of activists uh, in Africa around the issue of disability. So, Frederick, I hope it's okay to talk more with you outside this meeting. Absolutely. Great. Thank um, you. I had a question. Yes, Kate. Um, it was a first of all a reflection uh, um, about using human rights as the, the issue frame when talking about disability issues. Um, it, it came up um, in a number of the presentations and also in, in some of the questions. And we can see that in uh, communications around disability issues, human rights is often used as the reason that action needs to be taken. In our um, research across other social issues, we've often found that what you want to communicate and your best strategy for communicating it aren't necessarily the same thing. So you might wish to communicate, for example, that everyone um, ought to have their full human rights um, realized, but that actually often human rights as a framing strategy can be quite weak. And that's because most people in most places in our research have a very thin understanding of human rights. So you end up having to spend a lot of your time explaining what rights are, justifying them, rather than talking about the issue at hand. You can't simply assert human rights in, in many places because people have such a thin understanding. So I was just interested in, in other people's experience of using human rights as the lead frame in respect of disability and whether this might be an issue where the human rights frame does work, which would be different from most other social issues. It's a really interesting yeah. question uh, and, and one that um, uh, when I was at the Disability Rights Commission, we debated quite long and hard because people interested in human rights wanted very much to draw on things like disabled people being separated and put in place in different care homes, for example, as a sort of an example of everyday human rights in the, you know, the small places close to home that Eleanor Roosevelt talked about. But, uh, but on the other hand, um, we weren't sure that it was the most, that it was going to land best um, from a disability perspective. And, and we had a lot of, dis but I'm not sure that we had quite the, um, others may correct me. I'm not sure we had quite the level of research to to sort of bottom that out. But but in addition, in the in the UK, which I think is unusual, um, there's some scepticism about human rights, and you know, it's there's a whole debate about human rights. Um, I wanted to just raise another point, if I could, um, which was that I thought your tips, Kate, were were, were really really helpful, and it it sort of puts out a challenge to us in a way. Um, why it is that we still have ineffective framing going on. And sometimes it seems to me it's just that people aren't aware that it seems intuitively right to say there's a crisis going on, you know. Um, but other times, I, I do think there is this issue of people sometimes trying to, trying to um, do several things at once, you know, um, put out a, a message that's about, for example, um, you know, young disabled people having um, full access to education and um, being able to thrive and, and the lovely stuff that, that um, Frederick talked about, about being future focused, a lovely, wonderful vision about how things could be different. 
but at the same time, for example, trying to raise money. And it's how you square that circle and whether whether people are thinking that through well enough. I quite liked in the UK, there's a there's a current campaign going on from Guide Dogs and they've shifted. Uh, uh, I don't know whether other, what other people think about that campaign, but it whereas it used to be mainly about the fluffy dogs, I think, uh, um, but it's now very much about independent living. It's, it's, it's the stories of how having the, having the guide dog enables somebody to fulfil their dreams, to, to live the life that they can live. And it's very powerful. Um, and, and I just think, so there are ways of squaring these circles, but I'm not sure how, how sort of, um, whether, whether organisations need support or something in, in, in getting that right, in doing it productively. And there may be debate about that particular example. I'm, I'm, I'm just giving my own view. Thanks. Thanks, Liz. Um, Kate, I'm going to ask you to answer and then I'm going to turn to the audience, please. Um. Yeah, just very briefly. I think, I think this, for, for me, what it comes down to is that communication is, is a, an empirical exercise, but too often we treat it as an art. Do we like it? Does it speak to us? Does it resonate for us? Does it make us feel fired up and passionate? And all these things matter, but actually what matters more is does it work? Mm -hmm. And that is an empirical question that we too often fail to address. Um, and I'm sure we, you know, it, we could certainly answer the question is, is, is human rights a good frame in the UK or, or is this, this shift by guide dogs, uh, you know, going to deliver um, in terms of changing the story on disability, but too often we don't actually do the research to find out. Very good points. I think lots to discuss um, here. Um, it's not an art, it's an empirical um, exercise. I think that's a good point. So I'm now going to turn to the audience um, questions. Our first comment question comes from Professor Nicola Martin from um, London South Bank University. And in 2011, she was head of disability and well-being at the LSE. I remember you well, Nicola. Um, thanks for joining us today. So she writes, I was responsible for a disability identity conference at LSC, organized, delivered by disabled people, aiming to create positivity around disabled students. Do you think this sort of thing is useful to shift the narrative? So I'm going to take a couple of questions uh, uh, and then turn to the speakers. So her question is if it's worth creating a conference to bring speakers to shift narrative. The second question comes from Benedict Hofnangels, and there's a practical question. Liz, um, he is asking about whether you're going to share your presentation slides. But the second question, I think this goes to Kate, is should framing be guided or informed by, amongst other factors, by the goals? So um, thinking around how you frame and how that's linked to goals um, in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And um, a final question from Caroline Eglinton, um, who says, um, about about youth and um, not telling anyone about the condition. She, she says, I had a genetic condition, cystic fibrosis, 
and was interested about the youth support. So interestingly, as a child, I wasn't permitted to say the word cystic fibrosis at home. My parents believed it would be better for my brother and I not to tell anyone about our conditions. This led to a real feeling of shame and the authentic me with cystic fibrosis being a bad thing. And how do you shift cultural and family or she's asking she's making a point about cultural and family influences as mattering so i am going to um turn to our speakers and kate perhaps that the most direct one was to you and then um we can go to the question about um the conference and then the question the point the comment from um about cystic fibrosis so kate over to you so the question being, should framing be guided by goals? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yes, absolutely. So how we tend to approach an issue is to start by just really synthesizing what it is you want to achieve. You know, what's the problem that you want to communicate to people? Uh, how does it work? And what are the solutions? They're the three key elements of your story. And then so it's establishing what your story is. And that's what you want to get across to people. What's the problem? How does it work? And what do we do about it? And so then we develop framing strategies that can tackle each of those three elements of the story. So, yeah, we absolutely have to start by knowing what it is that we want to accomplish, what the goals are we need to accomplish. And often we find there's a gap between that story and the story that's held in the mind of the, the public. And our job then is to identify framing strategies that tap into the more productive ways of thinking in the public mindsets and push back the less productive ones. Okay, thank you. Who'd like to answer the question about a conference, whether we need those kinds of things? I mean, I think those conferences are useful. Um, the thing is that lots of people who are disabled do not identify as disabled. So the uh, Department of Work and Pensions, I think, found out for, uh, with the um, uh, Disability Rights Commission that 50% of people who we think are disabled do not think of themselves as disabled. So if we go out and we say, right, we're going to organize a conference for disabled people. This is all about disabled people. Lots of the folk that we want to reach will not come. And so I think that is uh, also a problem. And it relates to what's been said about cystic fibrosis, how stigmatized it is. And we know that mental health conditions and lots of hidden disabilities are really stigmatized. So I think we need to sort of, as Kate said, change the narrative on disability and say, actually, it's fine to be like this. We're going to remove the barriers so you can be included. Just one thing about what Kate said. I mean, of course, she's based on evidence and I'm not disputing it. But there is an issue. When we launched the World Report on Disability in 2011, we wanted to get press coverage. How do you get press coverage with a new report? You get press coverage through a number. And our number was that there are a billion disabled people in the world, 15% of the world's population. And sure enough, we got Guardian coverage, CNN coverage, BBC coverage. We did a lot of interviews, which we would not have had without the number. But the number was not, it wasn't just the number in itself. It was saying there are more disabled people than you think. Therefore, mainstreaming disability, removing barriers, enabling people to participate in educational employment and all the rest of it is the answer that you can't afford targeted solutions you've got to remove barriers in the mainstream so i think in a way we were following what kate said though we hadn't read it we had a number but we also had a solution to go with that number um and we got a lot of coverage and i i think it was the only way to do it at that time thanks tom 
Thank you um, for tackling both of those questions. Um, Liz and Frederick, if you want to comment, or I can go to the next question. I just want to say something yeah. very quick about the, um, the, the, the issue of that sense of shame and not talking about um, your experience. And it seems to me that this is where whole communities and public services can play a real part. For example, I'm, I'm a trustee of an organisation called Action on Disability and Development that works in a number of low and middle income uh, countries. And one of the things they've done with inclusive education is make sure that not only the children, the teachers, but also the families are fully involved so that the families support the goal of the child having the full education. And that, that so there's a destigmatization that goes on in the whole process. And and similarly, health and social care professionals could be linking parents up with other parents who have children with cystic mm -hmm. fibrosis, etc., bringing that peer support. So I think there's a lot that could be done systemically to to address that. Thanks. Thanks, Liz. Frederick, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, I was more on to the, the events around the school uh, for students with disability. I, I, I think the other way they could look at it is if the event is more about uh, spotlighting their issues, what, what uh, students with disability go through within the university as well. So it doesn't not, it, it really doesn't need to only be um, students with disability, but also need to bring the other community in the school, because then that's how then you begin to influence and you begin to let them know what is it that we are up against, what, what are our issues, what is it that we want help with, and how can you be of help to us in, in, in different ways. Yeah. Thanks, Frederick. That's a really good point that it's not preaching to the choir, talking amongst ourselves, but really opening that up. Excellent. So um, a next question I'm going to turn to is from Professor James Putzel at the LSE. And his question is around disabled people living in conflict zones in Africa and elsewhere who are often particularly targeted and the humanitarian organizations are still not addressing this in a meaningful way. In East, oh gosh, what happened to the question? It just disappeared. Um, oh, okay, there it is. I'm sorry. Um, in Ethiopia, state forces right now seem to be particularly targeting disabled people in Tigray as they conduct a horrific military campaign in the region. Would this be an area for future research? So at um, Frederick and Tom, if you could take that question. Um, another question comes from Isabella Lawrence, a PhD student based in the British Museum, who's researching a number of objects that relate to individuals who today might be categorized as disabled and who have historically been celebrated for, quote unquote, overcoming their impairments and achieving success. Whilst their successes are undeniable, the way their life stories are framed may now be considered problematic. Do you have any advice on how these histories could be framed in the context of museum displays? I'll take those two questions and then if we have time, I'll turn to more. So Frederick, maybe you can start and then Tom on the question of conflict and Liz and Kate, if you could talk about the framing of the historical objects. Yeah, the, the, the challenge we have in terms of humanitarian being not able to respond to issues that affect um, disabled people in a, say, in a conflict zone um, will primarily be around 
does the staff even understand what are the issues around conflict and disability? For example, how do you evacuate or help someone with a disability within a conflict zone? Do they have um, an understanding how to relate with the issue, the actual issues, uh, like say now, for example, uh, they've mentioned Tigray. And, and this is now the concept of nothing about us without us really comes in because sometimes people think it's just um, a, a nice word to say, but it actually means that within the framing or the, the, the construct of the, our organizations, we need to ensure that there's someone who's helping us think about how do we target particular constituents? How do we make our services accessible to people who um, like to get these services in a particular way? And that's why if, say, this humanitarian organization had someone with a disability, would, they will very much get help in terms of the, the how and then being able to go to the field and link up with uh, maybe cons uh, figure out a way of reaching out to persons with disability who are, with, who are within the conflict uh, zones and be able to help them. So really, this is an area that still needs research, but also more education about disability vis-a-vis -vis conflict. Because not many um, uh, humanitarian workers understand this, uh, even how to be able, or even if they want, they don't know how to support someone uh, from such a particular conflict. So that would be my um few cents about it yeah thanks um yeah no i obviously agree with frederick um just to mention two things so i used to work for who and they have guidelines for example for mental health uh, for for refugees and they have various guidelines to do with how as frederick says the relief workers in humanitarian settings can ensure that disabled people's needs are remembered for example for essential medicines for example for access to latrines for example, for food distribution, in all of which disabled people are at risk of missing out in humanitarian settings. And there's also the case of displaced people. We have a PhD student who's going to be working in Bidi Bidi refugee camp in Uganda, which is the biggest refugee camp in the world with a million people there, mainly displaced people from conflict in places like uh, Eritrea, Sudan and so forth, and across the border in Congo. And so we need to understand people's needs and we need to understand how they can be met within distribution and within uh, you know, the, the setup, both humanitarian settings and of uh, displaced people settlements. Um, so yeah, I just echo what Frederick said, we are researching it, but you know, we have a long way to go before we achieve equality, before we include people. Thanks so much. Liz and Kate, who'd like to take, take that question? about representation. Um, I'm happy to start. So uh, first of all, I think it's very um, encouraging to know that uh, the British Museum is thinking about the framing and the, 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 the lens through which these objects of historical interest uh, need to be viewed now, bearing in mind their own historical context and, you know, and, and uh, um, current, current thinking and um, Current, current desire for framing in, in, in a sense that is uh, that works for disabled people now. And I think the main thing to say is do it with disabled people. So, you know, Tom talked about co-production earlier. I know that uh, there have been some museums that have um, identified, for example, objects that have interest in relation to disability and done like a trail through a museum and they've devised that with disabled people uh, and um, 
And there are, there are disabled people particularly focusing on history through Disability History Month, for example, who might be obvious people to, to link up with. But I'm happy to uh, link up offline if that would be helpful. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, just to, to build on that, um, I can't speak specifically to the museum context, but what I would say more broadly about the use of um, stories in, in terms of people's individual stories or stories told through objects is that often what we find is that when we focus very specifically on an individual story, whilst that can produce quite an empathetic response, it can also be dismissed very easily because what people can tend to do in research is to say oh well they're exceptional look at that grit and determination that individual showed it's about them as a person or that person was an anomaly they were just very this or very that and and to write off the issue as being about the individual rather than to see the wider picture and to see the wider system at play and the interaction between the individual and the wider system so what we try to do that said, incredibly important um, for, for people to be able to have a voice and tell their own story in their own words with authenticity and in their own way. So what we try to do is to um, help people to tell that story in a way that connects to the big picture. So they're articulating why that happened, not because of them as an individual, but how it linked to the, the bigger picture. And that really opens up people's ability to reason about solutions and to see systemic barriers and opportunities. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Um, we are running out of time and I'm going to combine a couple of questions that are asking around similar things. One comes from Ishrat Jahan, who is an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity and a question from Julia Barbareski. And this question, I think Tom and possibly Kate might want to take it and others as well. It's about how do you balance telling the success stories with not, you know, creating a situation when someone doesn't match that image or, you know, highlighting the positive of adversity inoculation versus the risk of a, quote, Darwinian narrative where the ones who don't succeed are seen as not being um, resilient enough. Now, I want to apologize to everyone. I'm not going to get all of the questions, but, and Tom has to leave us in a couple of minutes. So I am going to turn to you, Tom, and then um, I'll, I'll, I'll continue. Tom. And I think we, as Kate said, we've got to both tell the stories of people who achieve success to show it's possible. And I think, you know, we want to leave a media interest and we know that human interest stories always work for that and put them in the wider context of the evidence of what works. Now, for example, Frederick has talked about the um, law which stipulates an employment quota. I don't know any evidence almost anywhere in the world that the employment quota works, but a lot of our colleagues are saying, let's have a quota, let's have a quota. Even in England, it doesn't work. The only place it works, as far as I can see, was in Germany, where everybody tends to follow the law. Uh, but you know, it, it, we still think that the quota is the answer. Uh, without the evidence to back it up. So I think we need to have a balance of, of stories of success and evidence of barriers. And I accept that some people do not succeed. And I think what we need to be very clear is to tell their story in a way that doesn't suggest their incapacity, but shows the barriers which stood in their way. And I think that way we can work together to dismantle the barriers. And I hope we can do that. 
and uh, I welcome everybody on this uh, talk in their, their, their work on that. And thank you. And I'm very, very sorry I have to go now. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Tom. Kate, did you want to add anything or any of the other speakers? I just wanted to, I think what Tom said is spot on there. I think we need to connect stories of both um, adversity and success to the bigger picture. We can't just say the successful people, it's down to their, them as individuals. <laughs> and those who struggle is because of the system. You know, it's always, um, it's always important to connect individual stories to the big picture and to the, the wider system. And that's how those stories do work for us in helping people understand the nature of the problem, how it works and what we can do about it. Great. Um, Liz and Frederick, did you want to come on and say anything else? No? Okay. So we're now at the tail end of our um, event. And I was so pleased to see so many questions coming up. And I think there, this is definitely an area for us to keep hosting events and having these discussions as it's so important. Um, before I close the event, I want to give all of our speakers a minute or two to share their final reflections with us. And then I'll, I'll close things out. So Frederick, you were the last to go. So I'm going to actually start with you. If you want to reflect on anything and, and things that we should be thinking about in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for all who uh, came through. So really for me, changing the narrative doesn't really it's not just an academic pursuit. It is really lived lives of persons with disability, really wanting to be able to be taken as human beings within the society. And we cannot change those narratives in their absence. So we're not going to write papers about persons with disability. We are going to consult them in what is the future that they want? How do they want to be referred to? Uh, and, and, and how does it look positive how does positive imaging look like in terms of when you are referring to persons with disability and what rights do they, uh, I mean, everybody needs rights, but how do they feel these rights have been infringed that we can work towards making it better so that everyone can live as, a, um, as they, they should be living in the society. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Frederick, and good luck with your work. Um, Kate and then Liz to final. Um, I guess in, I would say that um, it's always good to use, we can use data, as Tom said, with the one billion figure. Um, we can use stories that uh, shine a light on the discrimination or disadvantage that can be faced by disabled people. But the key is always to give people guidance on how to interpret that data because it doesn't speak for itself. We need to show people what they should do with that, how they should think about that, and what collectively we can do about those challenges. And in that way, build a bigger we and implicate everyone in achieving better outcomes for disabled people, disabled people themselves and wider society and how it can make a difference for everybody. Um, and in order to figure these things out, we need to treat communications as an empirical exercise and we need to get alongside one another and amplify one another's messages. Because if we're all lone voices, 
going off at slightly different angles with our own kind of preferences, we don't have a loud enough and a strong enough voice. So amplifying one another is really crucial in making a shift. Thanks so much, Kate. Um, And Liz, final Um, words. Yes. So um, I think we've, we have had some real successes in different countries, uh, but I was struck even when I was, preparing my talk that in the American context, they did a lot to reach out to wider publics and gain support. And I think a number of other um, sort of social justice initiatives have done that as well. If you think about the the campaign for equal marriage, for example, I think that the UK experience on disability has been a little bit more fragmented. It's quite often been we want rights, which uh, it's uncertain whether that lands well with the wider public, if you sort of mean. Um, So I think academics and practitioners, uh, disabled people in all those disabled academics, disabled practitioners, disabled disabled people campaigning could really sort of share the language within which to think about this, because it will be different in different countries as to what's going to land, how and what the imperatives are and the priorities. But I think this discussion gives us a way to think about it. And I think the more that we can share that, the better and build bridges with other with other um, with other campaigns as well out beyond disability, learn from what they've learned, um, and I think then we could make more progress than we've been perhaps able to in in recent years. Thank you, thank you so much, and I also want to thank Tom Shakespeare who left. Um, he had to attend a different meeting um, for his contributions for today's um, panel discussion. It has been a real pleasure for me to chair today's event. I want to thank all four of our panelists for presenting and sharing their thoughts. I think we've had an incredibly exciting and very um, illuminating and thought-provoking discussion. And I want to thank everyone in the audience who joined us. I want to apologize for not getting to ask everyone's questions, but we were short of time. And as I draw an end, just to um, use this final minute to plug the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program and to announce that the applications for our sixth cohort of fellows for 2022-2023 is now open. And if you would like to learn more about the program, please follow the link in the chat. And also in the chat, you can find a link to the Inequalities Institute website and how to sign up for our newsletter for further information. So thank you everyone for today and also to our wonderful events team um, for organizing this and they're in the background. Um, Thank you very much for all your support and assistance in making this uh, an event a success. So until we meet again virtually or otherwise, I bid everyone goodbye. Thank you.